you have your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We will be in verses 28 through 31. 28 through 31, and we'll actually be here this week and next week. I'm just going to concentrate on one part this week and a different part next week. Let me make a few comments real quick about uh, um, a couple encouraging things. I was encouraged by the opportunity to go to uh, the CCEF conference last week. I look forward to um, seeing how the people who went are impacted by uh, the truth and wisdom that was shared. And uh, I look forward to seeing even its change in my own life as we thought about the, um, the topic of emotions and what the Bible has to say about emotions, not what the world has embraced concerning emotions. I'm thankful that I could entrust the preaching of God's Word and the wisdom from God's Word to be shared by Nick last week. I was blessed by the sermon um, as I listened to it and prepared for house gathering, and thankful for that. I wanted to make a quick comment about biblical counseling. There was, uh, I believe it was a biblical counselor named Deepak uh, Reju, He's, a, he's at uh, um, Capitol Hill Baptist Church with Mark Dever, if you know who that is. If you don't, no biggie. Um, anyways, he made, I think it was him who made this comment, and, and I related so well. Talking about his journey into biblical counseling. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a church. I grew up in churches and learned lots of biblical knowledge. I went to Liberty and Southern Seminary and gained lots of biblical knowledge. And I think it was a couple years after seminary that um, that ran into a, God brought into my life a new friend who kept talking about this biblical counseling thing. I'm like, what are you, dude? Like, I mean, I took a class on that, but what's, what's the big deal? And, and I agree with Deepak when he said this. He goes, I, I feel like when biblical counseling entered my life, I learned how to be a Christian for the first time. I actually learned how to be a Christian. I knew all of this stuff, but I learned how to be a Christian. And, and the reality is good biblical counseling is nothing more than applied theology and nothing more than discipleship. Good biblical counseling is that. Nothing more, nothing less. And so I, I have been deeply impacted by that as I believe it was Deepak who said the same thing. Uh, I want to give you a couple of my quick takeaways from, from that week, uh, from the conference. We discussed, again, the idea of emotions, and just a couple quick thoughts was this. When Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, he is revealing to us that God is not just intellectually committed to the eradication of our sin problem, but is emotionally committed to it as well. Eradicating, I think was the right word I should have said. He feels the weight and destruction and of course its impact on his children. Like he, he feels the weight of that. Not just emotionally committed to it. And I think we oftentimes relate to God as some emotionally disconnected being that just exists in pure truth and no emotion. 
something to think through at another time. The second thought is this, that we, always, we should always biblically engage our emotions by engaging God. That, that they're kind of like the fuel of worship. They reveal what we're worshiping. They help fuel our worship, kind of cyclical in nature. And when we do anything but take our emotions to God, we short-circuit their very purpose. We do anything but take them to God. I think those are some very challenging points. and I mean, I, I gave those to you as just kind of some big, broad thoughts, but those are particularly two of the ones that particularly stood out to me over the course of that weekend. God's not just intellectually committed to solving our sin problem, but is emotionally committed to it as well. He, so when Jesus is weeping at the tomb, why is he weeping? He's weeping because he sees the depth and the hurt and the brokenness of sin and what it's done to these people that he loves and he cares for. And he's broken by it. But Jesus wept. And, and a lot of, uh, well, I think the point that they particularly drew out, that I would even draw out to you today, is that that doesn't just reveal Christ's humanity. That's not just revealing the fact that he's a human and he feels things. I think, if anything, it reveals his divinity. And that as God, he feels deeply about these things. So, there you go. A couple big takeaways. Start off on a light note. I want to review for you the couple weeks prior to Nick teaching last week. I want to review and then catch you up because we're going to kind of fall on the same train of thought. So men, we talked about how, how we're supposed to, we're called to, we're commanded to love our wives with first of all a sacrificial love. That this sacrificing of ourselves, a sacrificial love for our bride. A couple things that we talked about concerning the sacrificial love is that Christ-like love is a gospel-enabled love. That if you're actually going to get at this, what does love, sacrificial love look like, it's going to be, it's going to have to be enabled by the gospel. That you love because He first loved you. That if you love your spouse, you're going to do it rightly. It's going to be out of the love of which God has first loved you. That your attitude of love comes from the gospel of love. How should I define what love looks like for my spouse? I should look at the gospel and Christ's love for his bride. And we talked about practically that this love involves showing unceasing care and loving service for your wife's entire well-being. Her whole self, her entire existence, this side of eternity. We also talked about how this Christ-like love, this sacrificial love, demands death to your life. And we're going to kind of pick back up on some of that theme here in just a few moments. 
But what I'm saying here is that the, the selfish part of our life, the fleshly part of our life, that's going to require death to that. That the model for the husband's love is Christ laying down his life for his bride. That Jesus even took the initiative, that he was not passive, but he was intentional, he was proactive. He had a plan and he carried the plan out. You see, the exercise of your leadership, husbands, should enable your wife to know the fullness of God's grace in her life. Not to know His grace in spite of your leadership. Now, I, I know, that, like, that's laying it on thick. I get it. Sometimes that's the way it is. That, that we, we, we shouldn't bring the scriptures down to just meet us where we're at. But instead, preach the scriptures where they're at and ask the Holy Spirit to lift us up. To help us be what we're called to be. And the beauty of it is, is that that's God's plan. And so if you're a child of His, He'll finish that. So we depend on Him. So we talked about sacrificial love. Then we talked about, second, the sanctifying love. The sanctifying love. That husbands are to lead their wives to greater confidence and faith in the gospel. Again, not letting their life be a cause uh, through their trials and error for greater faith than trust in the gospel. Although God is faithful and trustworthy to do that as well. We're to lead our wives, to, to depend more, to have greater strength, to have pure faith in the gospel. Not in our leadership, not in our ability to make decisions, not in our handling of sin, but in the gospel, God's work. How do we do this? How do we do this? The sanctifying love. How do, we, how do we help our wives be greater in their confidence and faith in the gospel? Two quick thoughts. By making sure that the word of God is increasingly the prevailing voice in the home. That the word of God is who we go to. That's where we go. That's what we depend on. When nothing else makes sense, we hang on this. When we don't want to do this, or we don't want to do what's right, or we want to go this way. No, listen, family, we trust in the Word. That's where we hold fast. Even when it doesn't make sense, even when we don't like it. Even when it might cost us something. See, our responsibility as husbands is to ensure that the Word of God is this overwhelming, the loudest voice, if you will, in the home. Not yours, dad or husband, but that the Word is the loudest voice in the home. And the truth is, as we talked about that week, is that in order for the Scriptures to be the prevailing voice in the home, Husbands, that must be the prevailing voice in your own 
heart. That's the only way it's going to come out. It's the only way it's going to become the prevailing voice in your home. At least through your leadership, as if it is the prevailing voice in your own heart. And then we talked about this idea of treating your wife as the beautiful bride that her Savior sees her as and sees you as as well. That his bride is being prepared to be presented in all her splendor, all her glory, all her beauty. And that if we view our wives that way, and we tell her, that changes things. I, listen, guys, if, if I'm just being transparent, like, like I'm just I'm working through these too. Like I'm trying to figure out how have I told my wife of her beauty in the gospel of Jesus Christ as much as I should. And, and, and I mean, just literally, just I'm sitting up in a deer stand, in a tree stand, in the middle of the woods the past couple days, and enjoying the beauty of creation. And I'm sitting there thinking, reflecting on these things, and trying to figure out how, how and have I done this, and how should I change? And so, all to say, sacrificial love, sanctifying love—that's what we're called to, men. It's not an option. This week, I want to talk to you about the idea of satisfying love. Satisfying love. Let's read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28 through 31. Paul says this, in the same way, husbands, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Why don't you pray with me? Father, as we study Your Word, Father, may it, may it ring truer, more believable, more persuading, more delightful than maybe it ever has. Father, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So two parts. This week, satisfaction in loving your bride. Next week, we're going to talk more about the one flesh union. So think about it this way. This, way, this week, we're going to basically take a practical look at Paul's instructions. What does this look like to practically love your wife as you love yourself? What does that practically look like? Next week, we're going to look at really the motivation for that in the one flesh union. We're going to think through the scriptures in this one flesh kind of what, what, why is this? Because this is like loving myself, but that kind of sounds, uh, I love her as I love myself, that kind of sounds selfish, and how do I think about that? And So I want to look at that more next week. This week we're going to look practically, what does this look like to love her as you love yourself? So two parts, this week will be part one. If you saw my post on Facebook, I have a lot of extra words this week to get through that um, I just could not cut. Um, if you saw my post, too many words to cut. So let me start with this. We live in a culture 
I think we live in a culture, even a church culture, where self is king. Where self is king. We live in a political culture right now where self is king. What is good for me is king. Listen, every single one of us in this room, every single one of us, without exception, every single one of us in this building, for that matter, are bent towards the promotion of self, the promotion of my interests. I don't care what your past week has looked like. I don't care what, like, that's your fleshly bent. That's where you're headed towards if not enacted upon by the gospel and the Holy Spirit. You will go that direction. You say, well, but I can do nice things for other people, but who are you doing them for? Your glory, right? So without the work of the Spirit, that's our bin. Let me give you some examples. First one, when leaders of this church give, and I don't mean just Rusty and I, give direction or a decision. I've even seen evidence of this. The first thought that comes to mind in most people's mind is this. How is this going to impact me? Our first instinct is to protect me. Or when asked to serve in the nursery, roadie crew, or commit to house scaling, your first thought is, how is this going to impact me, my schedule, my life? Let's press in a little further. Husbands, when your wife desires a certain value for your home, a certain direction, a certain kind of plan, a certain desire. What's the first thought that comes to mind? How's this going to impact me? As Nick preached about last week, we have conflict because our desires are sometimes evil and they're within us. Like they're inside of us. I would argue, I think you can even really simplify it this way, that when our desires have self at the center, they will always be evil. When self is the driving factor in our desires, they will be evil. You see, we all have this struggle with this idea of elevating ourselves higher than we should. Romans 12. Go read Romans 12, where it talks about having a too high of an estimation of self. Think of it as like aggrandizement, right? Like we want to think greater of ourselves than what we should. We all like to think of ourselves as the hero of the story. Right? As the one who made it through, as the one who ensured success. And listen, I bring this up because this will be the enemy of this passage, as it is the enemy of the cross. Husbands, you will not love your wife in a way that is satisfying. For you, in caring for her as you do, as we talk about this idea of caring for her as you do your own body, you will not do this in a way that is satisfying, as we're talking about today, if you are at the center of that. 
Wives, you will not receive rightly the care and love of your husband if you're at the center of your own worship and your own focus. Both of you, at the end of the day, will be empty at best and frustrated, angry, and hurt at worst. You see, the first thought I want you to see in this passage is that the husband must realize that care for his wife is supreme in God's economy. That care for his wife is supreme. I don't mean like more than caring about God's plans. What I'm saying is a part of God's plan. The care for his bride is a supreme care and priority in a husband's life. So here's what, here's what Paul does. I, I'm not going to jump back to the passage a ton today, but, but we're, we're floating right inside of 28, 29, 30, and 30, or 29, 30, and 31. Paul now refers to the idea of creation. Okay? So fo- follow with me. Again, we're going to talk more about this next week. But the idea of satisfying love may sound, I think, self-serving for the husband or demeaning to the wives. But I think that's because we probably have not thought deeply enough about it. The idea makes perfect sense in light of the fact that the two have become one flesh. Now again, we're going to talk about that more next week. But husbands, think with me for a second. You long to have your needs satisfied, right? Is there any husband in here that does not long to have his needs satisfied? No? Okay, so you're all with me. Intimacy, joy, security, health. Peace, companionship, community. The call here is to provide them for your bride also. So the question is, how are you doing at this nourishing your bride? Physically nourishing her, cherishing her, admiring her, and complimenting her. How are you caring for her needs? It's, again, more of an introductory thought at this point. We'll flesh it out more in a bit. How are you doing at that? How are you doing at caring for her as you think about even the caring for your own needs? And when we think about this, like this idea of this phrase, this, as their own bodies. That's, that's, I think, a little weird. Like, what is Paul talking about here? I think what Paul is doing, he's simply applying the second great commandment, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And for a husband, listen to me here, your nearest and dearest neighbor is your wife. You see, the idea of husbands loving their wives as their own body reflects, again, the model of Christ, whose love for the church can be seen as love for his own body. We are his body. You hear all this language of abiding in Christ and and as he abides in the Father and all, like we're this one body, and you see the same language taking place there. You see, men and, and ladies, it's natural for people to regard their own bodies as important. I think that's what Paul's kind of using here. Like, yeah, this is obvious. You're going to do this. Like, we do everything possible to take care of our bodies, albeit misguided sometimes, but. 
We at least do what we think is most desirable for our bodies. We cherish it and nourish it. So what is essential about marriage? As we think about this, what is essential about marriage? It is this unity. It's this idea of this becoming one flesh. You, know, you can almost take Paul's, most of Paul's writings and like preach them backwards. A lot of times if you want to, like he drives to the motivator and the point sometimes. And you, so you can kind of start there and work your way back to, to kind of flesh it out, if you will. But, but we're just going verse by verse. So next week's going to be the kind of the motivator and the reasoning for this, the, the one flesh aspect. But for now, let it be said that this is essential to marriage. This is something that we do not understand. I like what Greg Gilbert said. He says, Unity lives where self-regard dies. And self-regard dies at the foot of the cross. Unity lives where self-regard dies. And I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, We have to stop thinking of these two people as separate. Any tendency to assert self at once conflicts with the fundamental conception of marriage. And at last, Dr. Jones says this. Listen to these words. It should be unthinkable for such a conflict to arise. For to think of these two as two is to deny the basic principle of marriage, which is that they are one. Think about that when it comes to conflict. Think about that when it comes to selfishness in marriage. What I really want to impress upon you with the text today Kind of this underlying tone of satisfaction in the satisfaction of another. Being satisfied in the care and the health and the well-being of another. You see, when the gospel takes root in our lives, this possibility to disregard self for the good of another is placed deep within us. Like a small flame that needs to be, needs oxygen, needs air, it needs to be fanned into, needs to be blown onto. Listen, we're not talking about, this is what I want you to see, just at the beginning here, Paul's not talking about doing something to your spouse so that you can get something in return. That's not what Paul's talking, he's not saying, well, you're really just going to be taking care of your own body if you just take care of her. So if you want to take care of your own body, you should go take care of her. That's not what Paul's talking about here. We're talking about actual satisfaction when the other one is cared for. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you four practical applications for caring for our wives as we care for our bodies or in the similar way in which we would care for our bodies. I want to give you four of those. 
first one's going to be put negatively. The last three are going to be put positively. First one is this. Notice the environment of dissatisfaction as you neglect your wife to satisfy yourself. You shouldn't have to think hard or look hard for examples of this even this past week or at least the past month. Right, so to neglect the body is bad, right? We all agree with that. I mean, we don't have to be medical doctors or nurses uh, uh, to know that neglecting the body is bad. Nothing good comes from that. And we think about it, the body really is frail. I mean, it's, it's, I get it, it's pretty tough, it can be tough, but overall, when you think about the body, it can be pretty frail. I mean, think about what a little germ can do to your body. I mean, particularly for you men, right? Like, you get like a little germ, and you're like down for the count, right? Like, oh, I can't move, I can't breathe, I can't get out of bed, right? And your wife's like, you know, about to die, and she's like out there taking care of the kids, and you know. I get, I mean, I'm that way, I know. Down for the count. <laughs> I got sniffles. But if you, listen, if you neglect the body, you will suffer for it. Your work will suffer. Your emotions will suffer. Your mental energy will suffer. Now, I, I do want to insert a thought here. Don't blame laziness on your physical like mental laziness on simply physical, although there is obviously a connection between the two. But once you understand that if you neglect your body, other parts of your life suffer for it. So think about, think about this, man. I don't know what's going on. Think about... He's going to fix me up. Hello? Am I back on? Am I good? Okay. Whew. Man, it's like uh, technical difficulty Sunday, I think. I must be talking about something semi-important. <clears throat> think about this with me. Think about all the trouble that neglect of your marriage has led to. Just, just for a few moments, think about that. Areas, maybe it's not the whole marriage, but maybe it's areas of your marriage that you've neglected. I mean, it's not uncommon to see men and women doing their own things, not enjoying time together, not communicating about their deepest longings and hurts. Men enjoying their own hobbies, whether it's the sports that their kids play, it's television, working on cars or reading, and then kind of just existing with their wife. <laughs> right. All right. Woo, we were being like super negative. And I guess the Holy Spirit was like, yeah, you're not going to do that. Um, all right. So we're thinking about, follow back with that. And I'm doing this mostly for me because my train of thought. All right. Thinking back to this, this idea that the neglect of our marriage, where has it led to? Thinking about example, I'm sure we can all think about specifics even, when we think about 
the neglect of your marriage and what it leads to. I go Martin Lloyd-Jones said, he said, it's sad for a man to get married and then neglect his wife. Let me give you an example. It's something I counseled not too long. It's not an uncommon uh, thing I've seen to, to work through, particularly with, with younger couples, but I hear this phrase, we don't have enough time together. We don't have enough time together. And it's usually this in the context of, of there's things that we really need to be doing and we just don't want to do them. Uh, and so they try and find a way out of doing those and it's typically, well, we don't have enough time together. But what's interesting is that as you kind of start pressing into their lives, what you find is that they have lots of time together. I mean, there might be some exceptions to this, but, but clearly most of, most of the time that I've counseled this, they have lots of time together. It's just a matter of how are they spending it. And I don't want to pick on electronic devices, but a lot of times it's separate into the couches, reading in the same room. So they're together, and they've got lots of time together. It's just the way they're spending it. It's horrid. No wonder you don't feel like you have enough time together. It's because, yeah, you're busy doing other things. But you could switch that. You could change that. So the problem is the quality of the time. So let me ask you this question. How much time do you spend working through, with your spouse, the struggles of your or her sinful heart? Like, how much time do you spend talking about that? You guys go to the cross together. How much time do you spend tending to the deepest parts of your wife's heart? Listen, I, like, I, I don't think Sarah would mind me saying this, but like 10 minutes, 20 minutes of conversation like this goes a long way. I just, just, I'm just giving you maybe some wisdom from my experience that like, having that kind of conversation like, just impacts, I know my wife, in such a deep and intimate way. Listen, husbands, you don't have to be a professional biblical counselor to, to get in there and, and ask what's going on in your wife's heart. You just need to be learning your Bible and care. So the truth is this. Again, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm pressing in a little bit further here, okay? The truth is this, is that all the items that would lead you to neglect your wife are simply the outworkings of an adolescent boy still prevailing in your life. It's the pursuit of boyish things. We just studied in Ephesians 4 that, that we are all, we're all, it says in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what does that mean? It means that the fullness of Christ and the, the stature of, of maturity, that what that looks like is what Christ looks like when he sacrifices and leads and loves and cares for the deepest longings of his bride's heart. That's what that looks like. So then anything short of that 
is short of mature manhood and should be left behind with the other boyish and childish things of our lives. Men, we need this desperately. All these things lead to neglect, wanting other people to do the hard work for us. It leads to neglect, and neglect happens when this boyish self is at the center. The reality is, as we work through this, what I want you to see is that not, the, not so much just four things to do to care for my wife or three things to do to care for my wife. But I really what you really what needs to be retuned is this is where you find your satisfaction at, men. Where is your joy spurred on? You see the satisfaction of your heart needs to be transformed. And we need to stop being so thrilled with ourselves in exchange for being thrilled with the gospel at work in our wife's hearts and her existence. Now, I, I want to give a little disclaimer here. This is where we have to be careful, men. What we're not talking about here is just make your wife happy. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about. So how do we just not make her happy? Well, we have to know scripturally what she needs, where her heart is beating rightly for Christ, and where her heart's beating wrongly for Christ. So you don't want to just give in to that avenue. You want to help foster this avenue where she is finding her satisfaction in Christ. So let me give you three kind of practical thoughts here and we'll be done. And the first one is this. Be satisfied as your bride is nourished. Be satisfied as your bride is nourished. Right, so your bodies, right? It needs regular nourishment. It needs consistent nourishment. You must be thinking, men, follow me here. You must be thinking always in terms of this. What will help my wife? What will strengthen my wife? What will help her? What will strengthen her? What will give her what she needs for this day? Men, I would encourage you, you need to be thinking holistically here. Nourish her spiritually Nourish her physically. Nourish her emotionally. Like, like when we think, so when we think about Christ caring for His bride, like it's not just limited to our intellectual understanding of God and He cares for us in that way and the rest of it's we're up to defend for ourselves. It's not that. 
but he cares for his bride. So even, even single ladies, God, God cares for you. Jesus cares for his bride. But let me encourage you too with this, men. It's not just about what calories and carbs and proteins, right? It's also about what tastes good, right? All right, yeah, I know. I, I get called the, uh, at least a foodie, whatever that is. I just like to spend my money wisely on something that tastes good. Listen, we're uh, influenced. Our wives are influenced by what appeals to the palate, by what gives us pleasure and enjoyment. So we should be thinking about this when it comes to our wives. What gives her pleasure? What gives her enjoyment? I mean, men, most of you are probably pretty excellent at this at one point. Right? Yeah, I said it. Right? At one point, like you were on top of it. But now we're talking about, now let the scriptures be the guide and what this looks like for your bride. You know what this requires? It requires active thought. It requires mental work. It requires giving that to the development of your wife. Ask yourselves, how often is gospel-driven conversation taking place in your home between you and your spouse? I don't want to put a, a frequency on this. Some people in different seasons need it more and need it less, but how often is this taking place? Wives, listen to me. I'm not trying to create dissatisfaction in your husbands for I'm not trying to give you excuses to, to be dissatisfied with him. Right? Because your hope's not in him, right? It's in God. That's why we went to 1 Peter 3. Your hope is in God and His work in your husband's life and His satisfying of your soul. That's where you go. But I also want to encourage you wives to be thinking, thinking well, thinking deeply about such things. Next, so husbands, be satisfied as your bride is nourished. Here's what I'm getting at. Like, to see your bride have what she needs, to be loving God, to be satisfied in Him, to know that she is loved by God, to have the strength of the gospel in her, to be cared for physically where she's not drowning in lack of sleep. and All this, does that warm your heart? Does that bring you joy to see her thrive in that way? Are you satisfied in that? Next, be satisfied as your bride grows in inward beauty. What happens if the body never moves? I mean, other, other than the fact that maybe it's dead. But like, if it's alive and it doesn't move, what happens? Like, so think about, I mean, I, I think about 
people I've seen who've laid in the hospital for six weeks or six months or whatever. What, what happens? They lose their muscles. Like they lose their like, ability to move. And then we think about like therapy and how they have to get their muscle strength back and learn how to walk. And you see that right in the hospital. You think uh, like a fall risk, you know, where patients could fall. Why? Maybe it's because of a bone or something like that, but maybe it's just because their muscles are weak and they can't stand up on their own. Their body that doesn't move grows weak. As the relationship, uh, husband, the relationship with your wife has to move. It has to be exercised. It has to be worked. It has to be tilled. It has to be strengthened. If you fail to communicate and communicate often, you will lose your ability to communicate. If you fail to communicate about deep things of the heart and deep truths of the Scripture, then you will lose the ability to do so. Now the flip side of that is if you've not had that, if you've not had that, you can work towards that. But it's not going to happen overnight. It happens slowly as you get stronger and stronger. You're able to have deeper and more intense and more... uh, uh, satisfying conversations. Now I know, I know, we all have excuses, right? I, I'm too tired to talk. I'm too worn out. Or I feel too much distance from him or her. I don't even know, if I know them as well as I once did. Or we're too busy to read our Bible together or pray together, right? Or I don't know enough about the Bible to talk to her about it. Listen, just like that hospital patient doesn't get up and walk overnight, so is your relationship. It's not going to get up and walk overnight. It takes time, diligence. So, so listen, men, I, I just want to be real honest with you. We've talked about the heart motivations of all of this for the past, you know, five chapters. But after talking about the heart motivation, you know what's next? Discipline. Hard work. That's what being a man is about. We want to shrug hard work. We want to, we want to avoid it. So we, again, we've talked about the heart. But we're going to talk about it just takes hard work sometimes. It takes discipline. Like, like you know, the thing that you do when you want something really bad? Whatever your body and mind and heart, like when you really, really want something, you know how like you will move earth and sky to like get it? That thing? That's called hard work. And that's what is going to be required of you here. As we've talked about this before, that that. When hard work, though, is redeemed, it's when it becomes a joy. So men, your satisfaction in yourself is fleeting and will always be until it is satisfied in the growth of the beauty of your bride. And this is why we, uh, like men, this, this is why we keep chasing all these other things. Except what God's called us to do. It's because they never gives us enough like if you find your satisfaction in, in Ohio State football hopefully last night like you were just shown 
that it's not enough. Yes, I went there. I had to. I'm a bigger Green Bay fan than I am an Ohio State fan, but I am sad that they lost. Third, final thought is this. Is be satisfied as your bride feels safe and protected. Again, all we're fleshing out here is what does it look like to love our body, like love our wife as we are to love our bodies. We're to cherish our wife and care for our wife as we care for our bodies. You ever known anybody that's just prone to illness? They're just prone to illness, like prone to, maybe they have like an autoimmune disease or they, they've got something where they're just, their immune system's weak and they're just prone to sickness, quick to catch colds. Let me ask you this, what does a wise man do? What does a wise lady do in that situation? He or she takes care about such thing. He washes his hands frequently and wears the appropriate clothing. I was thinking about this. Like, I regularly wash my hands. When I go to conferences, I wash my hands all the time. Like, washing, washing. Like, hey, come on a second. I'm going to go to the restroom and wash my hands. There's lots of people, lots of germs. And I'm not one that's prone to get sick pretty easily. I should knock on wood or something, but... So let me, let me ask you this, men, have you discovered the conditions of your wife? Meaning, like, does she have some particular temperamental weakness? Have you discovered that she has certain special characteristics about her and what those are? Is she nervous or apprehensive about certain things? Is she too outspoken? Does she not speak up enough? What is, what is her heart prone to worship? What are the things that, of God that excite her? Listen, man, it doesn't matter what it is in particular. She needs protection from you, by you, from these things. Maybe she needs protection from you, too. Maybe that was more prophetic than the other. So listen, when you, when you think about these particular ailments of your wife, what is your reaction to them, men? Avoidance? Oh, we don't go there. Do you get irritated? Annoyed? Condemning? Dismissing? Like, do you just dismiss it? Oh, that's just the way she is. 
Listen, men, act as you do with your body. Protect her. Guard her against such things. Do everything you can to safeguard her from the weaknesses and the frailties that are a part of God's sovereign plan for her. But listen, man, you don't do this by just sweeping them underneath the rug. You don't just kick the can down the road. But in grace and the gospel, you aid her in these things. So you got these easy ailments and stuff, uh, these quick little things that are kind of ongoing, but what about when we think about greater infections and greater diseases of the body? Some that even kill the body. Well, there's certain that there's correspondence to that in marriage as well. Things like trials, troubles, tribulations. These will test, such things will test the marriage to the very limit. Like what the doctor says, you must treat the cancer when you see it. What do you do? You do everything you can to treat the body, to protect it, right? So in marriage, like what is it that continues to test your wife? Thinking about how do you go on and protect her and aid her and help her in that. Listen, men, we have to have the same thing, right? Like, and, and, and she, God has given her in her position as our helper some of the ability to do the same thing for us. So, so wives, don't understand, I'm not, like, we're not, Paul's not saying that you're this weak person and your husband's this strong person who's going to fix everything in your life. That, that's not the point. Listen, you're both terribly weak people. Period. That's why you need him and he needs you. There's only one relationship where the one is perfectly strong and the other one is infinitely weak and that is Jesus and his bride. We must treat cancer when we see it. We also must protect, like, I think in terms of inoculations or vaccines. Like, do everything you can, men, to help build up the resistance, gospel resistance in the life of your wife. How do you prepare? Prepare her and prepare your marriage for whatever might come. Like, men, how are you building her up? It's not, what, I, what I don't mean is, like, like you're, you're not leading her to have some unhealthy dependence on you, but you're building her up to be dependent on Christ, to be dependent on the gospel. So men, are you satisfied in seeing your wife safe and protected, prepared? Like treating your, your wife as you should be treating your body, you're protecting and caring for your body. 
You see, Paul says in 28, he who loves him, his wife loves himself. So man, I, I just want to encourage you this week, ask that question, am I satisfied in this? Like, does that, as I'm faithful to God and caring for my wife in these ways, does that satisfy my soul? Does that satisfy my heart? Or am I looking for that other places? You see, like we began, self at the center is not really the way of the cross, is it? Self at the center is not going to make this happen. God's kingdom seems to be reversed. Now just read the Gospels, read Christ, read the way He talks. God's kingdom seems to be the opposite. The world says, watch out for yourself, men, because if you don't, no one else will. The world says, husbands, make sure you take care of yourself, because if you don't, your wife surely isn't going to do it. It appears, I think, that God is calling you men and has been calling us over these past few weeks to care for your wife. And I think the kind of the meta-narrative going on here is, and let God care for you. You care for your wife. God will care for you. It sounds an awful lot like someone else. Let me read to you Philippians 2, 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he, Jesus that is, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." See, men, you can humble yourself to care for your wife because Jesus first humbled himself to care for you. This is what servant authority does. Servant leadership does. It lays its life down for the good of those in its care. And men, you can only do this as you look to the one who first did it for you. But men, let me, let me encourage you with something. Let me forewarn you about something here. Sometimes those in your care don't realize or don't know that you're actively laying your life down for them. They may even rise up against you. This is why husbands... Your servant authority isn't motivated. The caring for your wife isn't motivated by your wife's response, but instead should be motivated by your response to the gospel. He laid his life down. I can lay my life down. I'm not saying that you shouldn't listen and get feedback from her. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that your motivation can't be her response. It must be the gospel. Her response matters. 
that you respond to the gospel. And my last thought for you men is this, and ladies as well. If you're satisfied in the person Jesus Christ, you will be satisfied in the gospel satisfaction of your bride. When she's taken care of, you will be satisfied. When she's protected, you will be satisfied. When she's nourished, you will be satisfied. Why? Why? Because in front of your eyes, you've got this picture of what Jesus is doing for you and what Jesus has done for you. Why, why is she encouraged in faith and confidence in the gospel through this? Because she's seen physically and tangibly and experiencing tangibly and emotionally and, 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 he, and, and spiritually what is happening from Christ and His church. And she sees that with you and she gets to be encouraged by that and you get to be encouraged and you see that happen and take place. And If you're satisfied in the person of Christ, you'll see, you'll know that there is a satisfaction when it comes to caring for your wife as you care for your body. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that Father, we would with diligence and fervor and even abandonment to some extent that we would love care, nourish, treasure, protect, keep safe, guard our spouses, particularly men, to their wives. And Father, I pray that you would redirect the satisfaction of our hearts, that you would increasingly give us dissatisfaction in all the things we chase that are not what you've called us to do. And increasingly give us a taste of the love you have through your Son, for his bride. And as we taste that, Father, may we find satisfaction and obedience to it as we care for our wives. Father, let us nourish and protect and cherish her as you have done so to us. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.